Has anybody ever broken a bone? Any kind of bone? You've broken more than one? Broken more than five? Anybody broken more than five bones? Ten? More than ten? That's a lot. All right. We got a winner over here, I think. I don't know if that's a winner or a loser on their parents' insurance, but, you know, I broke a bone when I was 18 years old. I had played sports most of my life, but I'd been lucky not to really have any kind of major injuries. I'd had a few little minor things, but when I was 18, I I finished up my high school baseball career at Norcross High School just across Atlanta on the other side and finished up and graduated, and not too long after my graduation, I mean, I think it was just within a few days, my church softball team was a few players short, and they said, hey, you know, would you come out and play with us? I was like, yeah, all right. So I came out, and that night I was playing, having a great time, and, and I hit in one of the innings, I can't even remember when it was, about halfway through the game, I hit a ball that was kind of in the gap of the outfield, and I, I rounded first, and I was headed for second. I was sure I was going to be able to make it with no throw, but at the last second, the outfielder, who had a much better arm than I thought he did, turned around and fired it towards second base, and I didn't realize it was going to be as close a play as it was going to be until I really watched the ball getting close to second at a faster rate than I was getting to second. And so right about the last minute, before I really even realized what I was doing, I slid into second a little bit later than I should have started the slide, and my ankle hit that base and rolled up. And a few hours later, the doctors at the ER confirmed what I knew immediately when I heard the pop, that my ankle was broken. And so I spent the summer between my high school graduation and my freshman year of college, as any young man would want to do, in a cast on crutches, because I had this broken bone. And it wasn't anything that I was super excited about, as you can imagine. Uh, I hated the, the crutches. I hated the cast. If you've ever had a cast, you know how miserable those things can be. If you've ever had to spend any length of time on crutches, you know how miserable those things can be. But I spent about six weeks or so Uh, in that cast and on crutches as the ankle and the bone healed and the the damage that was done to kind of the ligaments and tendons and all the stuff that I don't even know what they're called was was healed up. And and that's how I spent kind of that summer. And so today we're going to talk a little bit, not about my ankle, but we're going to talk a little bit about brokenness. You know, we're in this series that we started a few weeks ago called Come to the Table. And at this, in this series, what we're really looking at is we're looking at the invitation of Jesus Christ for us to come to the table that he sat at with his closest friends and followers very near the end of his life. And that invitation to them and the instructions he gave to them to come and to be a part of that meal, that gathering, didn't just end with that meal and that gathering of those people. I believe it is an ongoing invitation for every single person that has ever walked the earth or ever will. And so what we talked about the first week is we talked about that there are four aspects to something that Christ did with those followers. It's that communion meal, that last supper. And it says during that meal, and we're going to read this here in Matthew 26 in just a second, it said that he did something very specific with with part of that meal. And it's, it's something that we do about once a month. We take those elements of communion of the Last Supper. We take those elements in a little different form here just because of the ways that we have to do that sometimes. But he took these elements and he did something specific. So I want us to read this in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it all, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we see that he did four specific things with these elements, especially the bread here as it's spelled out. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. And so that was really the framework for this series that we're in. And so two weeks ago, we talked about this idea of him taking the bread. He chose the bread. He, he picked something. He acquired something that he wanted. He picked it up and took it and claimed it for his own. And we talked about this idea that that was not the first time he had done that. He did that with those disciples that were even sitting at the table. He chose them. He walked up to them in various different places. He walked up to the, the seaside there, and he says, hey, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. He was walking the streets, and he gathered these men to himself. And then he still does that to you and I. Romans tells us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us, that he demonstrates his love to us in that, that he chose us before we could do anything to be kind of worthy of being chosen, that he did that. So we talked about that. Last week, uh, Pastor Josh Rice, who's on our, our teaching team for both of our campuses, he came and he talked about this idea of being blessed, that not only did he take it, but he blessed it. And this idea that the cross creates community, that the blessing of God is really found in the relationship with God, and it's really found at the table of God. And so he did a great job just talking about that. So today we're going to talk about this idea of the breaking of the bread, this idea that not only did he take it, not only did he bless it, but he broke it. And here's what I know, not because I'm super smart, but here's what I know. We are, all of us, broken people. Now, I know you're probably like me in that you can look at certain people and go, yeah, they're a little more broken than I am, right? Because we tend to do that. We usually don't verbalize it like I just did because as soon as I say something like that, you're like, wow, he is a jerk. But that's what we think in our minds a lot of times, right? We look at somebody and we go, wow, they're, they're broken. That's a person who's hurting. That's a person who has a lot of issues. That's a person who has a lot of needs. That's a person who has a, a past. They, they're, they're really kind of covered up by their guilt and their shame. I see a lot of brokenness in them. But we're all broken. In some way, it may not be that you feel like you are literally broken in half right this moment, but there may have been a time in your past where you felt that way. I don't know if you remember that first heartbreak. You ever remember kind of what it felt like to feel those first kind of emotions and your heart would flutter and your palms would get sweaty and you would see that person and man, you just love them. And I don't know, depending on your age or kind of how you know, cool you were, if it meant writing a note that said, do you like me? Check yes or no. Or if it meant telling a friend of a friend of a friend of somebody they seem to have met somewhere down the way and you wanted to get that to them and through the game of telephone, you're not really sure what they ever heard, but they never looked at you the same way ever again. And I don't know, how, I don't know if it was something that you said or you wrote an email or you just didn't even tell them, but on Facebook, you just said in a relationship with and you just added that person, <laughs> right? Nobody's ever done that? I mean, neither have I. That's just something I heard one time. But, but I, I don't know what that felt like for you because you just have this like initial relationship and man, the heart flutters and you're so excited and, and then you find out that they don't feel the same way that you feel. Man, the, the heartbreak that you felt. And maybe it wasn't some juvenile crush. Right? Maybe it was the first time that you really really wanted something. Maybe it was a possession. Maybe it was a job. 
Maybe it was an experience. Maybe you just wanted it. Like with every fiber of your being, every cell in your body was like crying out, I want that. And then there came that moment when you realized you weren't going to get that. They gave the job to the other guy who seems to be less qualified. The money wasn't available to pay for the ticket so that you could go. And so you have to stay while they get to go. You feel that break in your soul. You can't even describe it really when you're trying to tell people because it just, it just sounds like, man, I'm just jealous because they get to go or they got the job or they get the thing. But really, it's not even that. It's just trying to find words to express your brokenness. Maybe it's as an adult that you stood at an altar or you stood in some place in front of your family and friends and you said, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And here you are still living apart. You're broken. And man, you can put on a great face. I mean, we've mastered it, right? We've figured out a way to actually say the words, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. We figured out how to say that and cover up the pain and the hurt and the fear and the insecurity and the brokenness. But here's what I know. We're all broken. And you may not feel like your brokenness defines you. You may not feel like it is the identifier of everything that you are. And even if you don't feel split in two, I believe all of us have these little cracks in the facade of who we are because it's hiding some sense of brokenness on the inside because we're all broken. But here's what we think, right? Here, here's what we have convinced ourselves of, that we are the only broken ones. Like even as I say that, if I say, man, we're all broken, I think that there are some of us that those voices inside of our head, which are not always the enemy, it's just sometimes us playing tricks on us, that we kind of sit in this room and we sit in those places and we sit in those moments when we're reflecting on us and our life. And even when I say that, everybody's broken, you are convincing yourself that nobody's broken like you are. Nobody's faced the things you've faced. Nobody's experienced heartbreak like you've experienced heartbreak. Nobody's experienced loneliness like you experienced loneliness. Everybody else has got it all together and you're the only one that's broken. But here's what I know, that's not true because we're all broken in some way. Every one of us, whether it's little cracks or ripped in two, has been, are now, or will be broken. It's the reality of humanity. It's the reality of the life that we are living in this imperfect fallen world that we live in. And I told you a couple of weeks ago that part of the material that really shaped this series for us was a book by Henry Nouwen called Life of the Beloved. And I want to read you a quote that comes from Nouwen. This is what it says. It won't be on the screen. It says, our brokenness reveals something about who we are. 
Our sufferings and our pains are not simply bothersome interruptions of our lives. Rather, they touch us in our uniqueness and in our most intimate individuality. The way that I'm broken tells you something unique about me. And the way that you are broken tells me something unique about you. That's the reason for my feeling very privileged when you freely share some of your deep pain with me. And that's why it is an expression of my trust in you when I disclose to you something of my vulnerable side. Our brokenness is always lived and experienced as highly personal, intimate, and unique. It's why when you sit across the table from someone and they share some of their brokenness, you feel a connection. That's not just on that surface level. It's really a part of the intimacy in marriage because we have convinced ourselves in that dating period that we are not broken, we are perfect, and that we think we fooled the other one into thinking that we are perfect and whole, and that there's no brokenness in us, and I don't know when it happened for you, Maybe it was on your wedding day. Maybe it was a week later when you came home from the honeymoon. Maybe it was two weeks later or six months later or a year later or five years later. But somewhere in that initial stage of marriage, you just realize, I got to let the game go here. I'm broken. Like, I'm so tired trying to convince you that I'm not, that I'm getting more and more broken in this. Like, I'm, I, I think I'm fooling you, and yet I'm not. I'm just making life harder for me and for you. In these deep friendships that we have, whether we're single or married, the deepest bonds of those relationships is what? It's the authenticity that says, I can just be me, and me is broken. There's something about the life that I live, things that I've experienced, the things that I've done that you need to know about. And when we share in that brokenness, I think we find this level of relationship with one another that we almost can't duplicate anywhere else. But the problem is we've convinced ourselves that no one else is broken. We think that there are people who are walking around completely whole, who have never experienced pain, who have never experienced heartache, who have never experienced loneliness, and we think that they're different than us. I ran across this quote, and I'm going to not act like it's mine, even though I would love to, but I cannot cite this, and if you know who it is, feel free to email me. So I'm just going to put unknown. This is what it says. Never compare your behind the scenes to someone else's highlight reel. Never compare your behind the scenes to someone else's highlight reel because you get your behind the scenes, right? You know your emotion, you know your motivation, you know the experiences, you know the past, but all you get from other people is what they let you see. Let me just go ahead and tell you, nobody's as good as their Facebook and Instagram account. They're not. They're not. Like I snapped a picture yesterday of me and Branson going to baseball. And I said, hey, I'm getting to hang out with this guy. You know, the whole family will join us later. And it was a great picture, right? I mean, he was sitting in the back. I had faded me out, and it was him. And you could see he was holding a biscuit in his lap because I'm an awesome father, and I feed my children. (laughs) But here's what you need to know. You know why he was holding that biscuit in that picture? Because we had just turned into the ballpark. I fed him breakfast and threatened him within an inch of his life that if he didn't eat that biscuit in the next 30 seconds, he was going to go hungry during the game. I said, Branson, eat the biscuit. Dad, I'm not hungry right now. I was like, I don't care if you're hungry right now. You're going to eat the biscuit right now. You're not going to play baseball on an empty stomach, right? 
that's the behind the scenes to that picture. You know what you got? You got a picture of a great father feeding his son and hanging out with his son, going to play baseball. Because that's who I am. I'm a great father who does not starve his children. No, I'm the dad that was talking to my kid right before this about eating the stinking biscuit or he's going to starve during baseball. But we see these Facebook pictures and we see these Instagram pictures and we see people's tweets and we go, wow, look at their life. Like if you are just constantly posting pictures of your vacation, I hate you. <laughs> you know what vacation is for me? Stuffed crust pizza and Netflix with Corey. Like, like you're, you're just like, hey, you know, went to Cabo. I'm like, awesome, hanging out in Holly Springs. Because that's my behind the scenes. And that's your highlight reel. Like, not for everybody that's ever been to Cabo, but some people are still paying off Cabo 04 on their credit card. Right? That's the behind the scenes. And all we get is the Facebook pictures. Here's me with the Indian chief. Right? I'm at the Aztec ruins right here. This is, no, still paying 27% interest for the flights. Never compare your behind the scenes with someone else's highlight reels. You don't know. And as you convince yourself that no one else is broken like you, and as you convince yourself that no one else's behind the scenes is like yours, you are buying into the lie that the enemy would love for you to believe. That you're isolated. That you're by yourself. That no one can relate. Lauren Hall wrote the other day on Instagram a, a, a cool verse in Scripture. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's my favorite verse in all of Scripture. And the first part of that passage says, there is no temptation that seizes you except that which is common to man. Now, it goes on to talk about how God is faithful and there's a way out, and that's awesome, and you need to read that because that will preach for six weeks. But let me just focus on the first part for a second. The reason that's my favorite verse, and I've said this a thousand times before, is because what that verse tells me is that there's nothing I'm facing that someone else isn't facing too. There's no temptation that seizes you. There's no temptation you face except that which is common to man. Other translations say that other people aren't experiencing too. Because I believe, and it's been true in my life, the most dangerous place the enemy can ever get me is feeling like I've got nobody to talk to. Feeling like I can't share what's going on in my life because of what they'll think about me. I mean, if they think I'm tempted in that way, if they think I, I think that way, if they think I've thought those things, if they think I did that thing in the past, man, that's a dangerous place. And the enemy would say, no, 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 you can't talk about that. You got to keep the facade. You got to keep the mask on. You got to make them think it's perfect because they're not broken like you're broken. Have you seen their Facebook page? They're awesome. Have you been following them on Instagram? They're amazing. They're not broken like you're broken. And so you just say, okay, well, I guess I've got to push back. And instead of having intimacy, we find ourselves in isolation. And I think that's the place where we are most vulnerable to the enemy. We can say, yeah, yeah. Nobody can know. And we start living in the dark and we start living in secret. And it all started out of a place of brokenness. And we didn't think we could talk to anybody. We didn't think there was anybody that had commonality with us in our lives. 
But everybody is broken. You want to know who was broken? Jesus. Now, when I say that, I think you're like, oh, yeah, of course, he's got to pivot to Jesus here. He's preaching, but thank you. But no, I'm serious. I'm serious. This is, this is 100% God, but I think we forget he's 100% human. Like Jesus walked the earth, and Scripture tells us he was tempted in every way we are tempted, yet without sin. Later in the New Testament, it tells us that he took on our sins so that he could be the righteous for the unrighteous. But I think he experienced the emotions that we feel, right? We read Jesus wept. We don't know why he wept. We know what he was doing. He was standing there looking, and he just heard that one of his best friends in the whole world had died. Anybody ever wept when somebody you love died? I have. We see that he got angry. He walks in. These supposedly religious people are taking the place of worship and making it a marketplace. Not just selling things. They are selling the sacrifice. They're saying, hey, if you want to be made right with God, then you need to buy my dove for 50 cents. And the other guy's like, no, no, no. My dove's better, but it's only going to cost you 40 cents. No, no, no. Well, my... And they're now negotiating the price of the sacrifice. He was angry. He came in flipping over tables and he experienced emotion. And then in the last week of his life, we just read in Matthew 26, he's sitting at a meal with his closest followers and he takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to them. He takes the cup and he gives it to them and then they leave that place and one of his closest friends betrays him. And then he's arrested. And those that had said, I'll never leave you, left him. And he goes by himself and he stands in front of the religious leaders and he stands before the government officials. And then he's taken and then the guards, they begin to mock him. And they say, okay, you say you're the king of the Jews, all right. So they put a robe on him according to Matthew 27. And they put a crown of thorns, not because they wanted to just put a crown of thorns on him, but they were also giving the imagery, okay, you're a king, so we'll put a crown on you, but we're going to make it hurt. They spit on him. It literally says that in Matthew, that they spit on him. You ever been spat on? They did that. And they led him to a cross. And we know the story. They know him to the cross through his hands and his feet and they string him up and they put him up between two criminals. He was falsely accused, innocent of all charges and he hangs between the guilty. And, and I don't know if he felt this but there's a part of me if he did feel emotion like I do. If I were hanging there in between those moments of anguish and tremendous physical pain, my eyes would be searching for those who told me just a few days before that they loved me. I would have been looking for Peter. Peter swore to me that he would never leave. I'd be looking for my friends and family. I don't know if he felt this way at all, but there's a part of my human heart that thinks he might be just looking for one guy he healed of blindness who would still, in his gratitude, just want to be close to me. 
the Mary who poured the oil out, and I can still smell it when the wind wafts through my hair. I would want to think somewhere she's out there, but did he see her? I don't know. Because he was literally broken. And in that moment, according to Matthew 27, verse 46, this is what it says. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Theologians way smarter than me have debated and studied and argued about what he was actually saying here. And I don't know. But I do find it interesting that this is one of the very rare places in all of Scripture where we get both the English translation and the original language, side by side. Now, in the Old Testament, we would see that they called that place whatever, and it whatever, right? They would give us the name of the altar, the name of the place, the name of God's provision, and then the English translators would also then give us what that translation meant or what it said. This is the place that God provides. This is the place that God did miracles, and they would give us that, but this is one of the few places in the New Testament, and this is just a a totally rare thing because they're giving us the actual words that Jesus spoke and the words that you and I would speak today. I don't know if you've ever said the phrase, why have you forsaken me? But maybe you've said some iteration of that. Why are you leaving? Where are you going? Please stay with me. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Again, the theological implications here are such that he had to die on the cross for you and I to be saved. We know that. I believe he knew that. That's why he was able to have the Last Supper and tell them that his body was going to be broken and the cup was going to be spilled out. I believe he knew that part of it. And then he goes to the garden with a full awareness that he's going to have to take the cup of suffering and he begs his father, let this cup pass from me. Please do not let me experience this. And then he submits his spirit to the father and says, but not my will, your will be done. So he knows, and yet as he hangs, suspended somewhere between heaven and earth, 100% God and 100% man, he calls out, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani. Those were his broken words. I think you and I have some broken words. Maybe they sound a little different. Maybe if we're experiencing physical sickness and pain, we would say, why am I always sick and hurting? Maybe if you've experienced some past or even present abuse of some kind, you would say, how can someone do something like that to me? If you've experienced neglect or loneliness, you might say, Why do I keep falling in love with the wrong people? If you've experienced some type of abandonment, you would say, why do the people who say they love me keep leaving me? If you've experienced some type of words of hurt, you would say, how can people say and do such mean things? 
If you've experienced and walked through failure in your life, you might say, why can't I do anything right? You've had unmet expectations. You might say, I was hoping this would feel so much better. Those are some of the words of our brokenness. I don't know what words you use. But I think as Jesus hung there, his brokenness was expressed. And Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani. Dad, where are you? Why am I hanging here? Is this really worth it? A spear to his side literally broke him. And then he died. His physical body was dead, hanging on the cross. after he had declared his brokenness with his words. But if you think back to the communion table, what did he say? He took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood. And then he said this. It's recorded in 1 Corinthians. It says, every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. He knew that they would do that again. And here's what I believe with all of my heart, and you can disagree because it's not spelled out this way, but I believe this. I think he was saying to them, you don't know yet what my broken body will look like, and you don't understand really the brokenness that you may experience emotionally when I'm gone. But every time you sit down and you take the bread and you break it, remember that I was broken too. Every time you're walking through life and you experience heartbreak and heartache and you're broken and there's a crack in the facade and you experience brokenness, remember, I was broken too. Everybody's broken at least a little bit. You're not alone in this. And so here's what I've experienced. That if I am broken... The only way to be made whole is to identify with Christ's brokenness. That if I feel like I'm alone, if I feel like I'm isolated, I can't ever be made whole again. But brokenness is made whole in Jesus. That's what I believe. That's what I've experienced. That's what I know. 
That instead of feeling isolated, instead of the enemy ever getting me to a place where I feel like I am all alone and I am broken and I can't tell anyone about it and nobody's ever felt this way, I think Jesus is calling from the table and saying to you, I'm broken too. I'm broken too. I hung on the cross And I willingly allowed them to break my physical body so that I could know what it felt like. And so when you're hurting and you're in pain and you don't know where to turn, turn to me because brokenness is made whole in Jesus. And I told you when I was 18 that I broke my ankle. And they did what you would expect them to do. They put that cast on and they gave me crutches And they said, hey, we're going to hold those bones in place until they're healthy enough and strong enough to operate the way they're supposed to. And they did. That's what they did. I mean, eventually they were strong enough and healthy enough that they could just, I can do anything I want to do. I can play softball. I can run. I can anything I want to do. Because they took care of the break. A couple years ago, Corey experienced a break too. We have four kids. They're 10, 8, 5, and 3 right now. But Branson, who's our 8-year-old, when he was just 2 or 3 years old, this is 4, 5, 6 years ago maybe, he, uh, he was coming down the slide at McDonald's in their playland because I'm an awesome father who feeds his children. And they were, he was coming down the slide, and Corey was standing there because, you know, if you got like a young, small kid, like she was standing there at the end of the slide for two reasons. One, to make sure he didn't get hurt, and two, because the kid always wants to make sure you saw them come out of the slide, right? And so she's standing there, but he comes out way faster than we expected him to, right? And he hits her nose and breaks her nose. She immediately knew it was broken. I haven't been convinced for like five years. I just kind of thought like, eh, you know, I mean, like it's bruised, maybe, But she's like, she's had literal problems breathing through her nose. And she's gone to the doctor and she went to the doctor just a few weeks ago and they said, listen, there's a serious break here that healed incorrectly and we got to fix it. You know how they're going to fix it? They're going to re-break it. Does that make me husband of the year or what? (laughs) Right? So I want you to think about this. When I was 18, it broke And someone immediately came to the spot, secured the break, and took me to a place where they could cast it and it could heal correctly. Corey experienced a break and it went left unchecked through no fault of her own. And now to bring about healing, they got to break it again. I want to ask Gerald and Amy to come to the front for a second. Come up on stage. You've got someone who their brokenness was was treated correctly in the moment. So that now it's not weak. It's like it's supposed to be. And you have someone who had a broken moment and it went untreated. And now the only way to experience healing is to walk through brokenness again. I am told it is extremely painful. In the next few weeks, that's something she's going to do and I will be right by her side. But here's here's what I want you to know. 
every moment of brokenness you have ever walked through, I believe with all of my heart that Christ was standing right beside you, ready to secure the break and heal you. I believe that when that person said they loved you and they left, Christ didn't leave. I believe when the door slammed, he was standing right there with arms outstre- just outstretched and said, hey, I was broken too, but here I am. When you didn't get the job you really wanted, I think he was right there to comfort your disappointment. When you experience loneliness that you can't even describe, I believe he's right there. And here's what I believe. Again, we can debate this if you want to. I believe when you cry out your own version of Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani, I believe the heavenly father would say, nope. I had to stay away once so that I don't have to stay away now. No, I had to let my son die on the cross and experience brokenness so that you don't have to. I had to let him be the sacrifice so that you could be saved. I had to let him be broken so that you could be healed. I had to let the spear pierce his side so that you could be made whole. Today we're going to take communion in a little different way. There's going to be four stations down here in the front. And you're going to come to the front as Sean and Shelly lead us in a song. You can come initially as soon as the song starts. You can delay a moment and just kind of ponder and pray and spend some time talking to the Lord, searching your heart. But at some point while they sing, you're just going to stand up if you're comfortable doing this. And just come to the front. And you're going to come to this plate where the bread sits. And you're just going to reach in and you're going to break the bread. You're going to connect and identify with the brokenness of the body of Jesus Christ. More than that, you're going to remember that we're all broken, but we're not alone. And then you're going to take that bread and you're going to dip it into the cup that contains the juice of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's just grape juice. But it represents, according to Jesus Christ, the life-giving source that flowed through his body and on the cross was spilled out. And so here's what you're doing. You're taking your brokenness and you're reuniting it with the life of Jesus Christ. And then you're going to eat it. And as you do, you're going to say some words like this out of your own heart. God, I'm broken. I've been broken in the past or I'm broken now. I've been hurt. I'm alone. I'm scared. I'm a broken person. And I admit that today. And I don't want to be isolated. I don't want to be left alone. I don't want to be that person that has hurt that's never been healed right. So God, I want you to heal me. I want you to save me. I want you to make me whole. Thank you for being broken, Jesus, so that I can be whole. That's what you're going to do. Everyone in the room is invited to participate on some level. You just come to the front, you just take the bread, 
break it off, identifying with the brokenness of Jesus Christ. You dip it in the juice and then we eat because you've been invited to the table with Jesus who started this whole thing by saying, this is my body which is pray. God, I thank you today that we can identify with your brokenness, that you allowed your son, Jesus Christ, to be broken on the cross on our behalf. In the next few minutes, let us connect our lives to your life, our brokenness to your brokenness, so that we can be made whole because of what you did on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray.